You're listening to Second Breaks, the show where we talk about feeling better, doing better, and being better in midlife and beyond. I'm Lou Blazer. You know, I mean, who has not shied away from starting an important conversation because of fear? Right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're having a conversation with a loved one, a friend, a colleague, even with a neighbor or the grocery clerk. We don't like going there. We don't like having those tricky, sensitive, difficult conversations because, you know, we don't know where to begin. We don't know how to begin. We don't have the words, the vocabulary to discuss this important topic. Uh, we're afraid of the reaction. We get tongue-tied. We're frankly sometimes stymied because we've had experiences in the past that have left us feeling queasy in the stomach every time we consider having one of these sensitive conversations. I mean, I'm certainly... <laughs> very guilty here. Um, as much as I think I'm quite assertive and um, honor my boundaries and other people's boundaries when it comes to having difficult conversations, I am one of those people who would rather just walk away and keep quiet and not discuss it and then stew in silence, which is also not good, right? And, you know, I don't know about you, but Maybe I'm biased here because of my age, but I feel like the older I get, and now that I am in midlife, that the need to have these difficult or sensitive conversations aren't decreasing. In fact, they feel like they are multiplying. I mean, think about it. Think about the serious sort of topics that we need to have conversations with, with our parents, about their health, about their care. Uh, there's also you know, tricky conversations to have with our young adult kids who are also trying to become their own selves. And then we're trying to understand them and also guide them. So there are potential landmines there as well. And then raising our changing expectations at work, you know, our changing needs at work, that can be tricky. And of course, I mean, seriously, there's no shortage of sensitive topics to talk about with our significant others. The other thing, too, that I find really funny, well, <laughs> is that, you know, as much as we're older in theory, or no, not in theory, in reality, we have a lot of experience under our belt, but it does not mean that we have mastered this thing, right? I mean, sure, some of us have really done massive work on this and <laughs> have read enough Brene Brown books. Um, and some of us have some tools to help us kind of navigate the fear and the awkwardness and difficult conversations. But no matter how prepared we are or no matter how um, how much work we think we've done in this work, I think we can always use more tools in this space, right? And that's why I am very, very thrilled to have Nancy Berger here with me on the show. So Nancy Berger is a communications strategist and coach who guides executives and teams to foster emotionally healthy cultures. She's a certified leadership coach. She's an author and a seasoned researcher. Nancy brings 10 years, over 10 years, in communications expertise and research in psychology to elevate workplace connections. 
Nancy also delivers workshops and talks to universities, leadership organizations, and networking groups, all with the aim of cultivating clear, effective, and productive communication dynamics. So clearly, she has a lot of things to say about this topic of navigating difficult conversations. In this episode, Nancy and I peel back the curtain and explore the challenges many of us face when having difficult conversations. We talked about how fear complicates the conversation, why we don't always catch the fear-based thoughts behind you know, our actions, behind our decisions. We talked about setting the right expectations for ourselves, not for other people, for ourselves whenever we go into sensitive conversations and how to prepare for these sensitive and tricky conversations. All right, enough setup. Let's get on with it. I'll catch up with you at the back end. Um, full disclosure, I heard Nancy speak about some of the topics that we're going to talk about today uh, at a summit a few months ago. And there was there were certain things that you said that really struck a chord with me. And I couldn't wait to get it to get together with you to ask some more of these questions because, okay, so the topic is fear. And I had always thought that like, you know, we all know about fear, like everybody feels fear. And in our world these days, we're very open to talking about fear and yes. stuff. But you said that sometimes people do not even recognize that they're having fear-based thoughts or the actions that they're taking perhaps mm -hmm. are rooted on you know, fear-based thoughts that they're not even aware of. So I wanted to just riff with you about that. And, yeah. you know, do we not know <laughs> fear looks like we we do and and we absolutely know what fear feels like because we are hardwired to recognize any kind of threat to us right as human beings what i mean when i say sometimes we don't realize that we're having fear-based thoughts is that we typically knee jerk to believing our thoughts we just believe them we have a thought and we believe the thought we don't really understand that the thought is a choice. Every thought we have is a choice. So when we just get hard, when we just get used to our thoughts and we just believe them, buy them hook, line and sinker right away, and we don't question them, then we can be operating in a fear-based framework without realizing it. That's what I mean by that. That's it. So we're not interrogating ours. We're not saying, we're not questioning what we're thinking. We're just taking it as gospel almost, right? Yes. And the fancy word, phrase for that is metacognition. We, we, we're we not terribly good at noticing ourselves. We're just good at being ourselves, right? So so it, it is a skill to, right. to, to be able to notice your thoughts, question them, unpack them, and change them. Yeah. So can we, is it possible, Nancy, to come up with like a couple of examples of what could be actually rooted in fear? But that sounds rational or sounds like something else? Yes, it's a great question. And, and, and this is an easy way to look at it. And I think it will resonate with your listeners. We are writing stories all day, every day. We are meaning makers. We make meaning out of everything, right? But the meaning we make and the stories we write are not necessarily rooted in fact. 
So they're, they're, they're fiction-based narratives very often, not always, but very often. And we run with them. And we may even react to others or behave based on those narratives, which can get pretty prickly. So it's really a great practice to question our own narratives. Mm -hmm. So here's an example, a real life example. So I invite you to dinner Mm -hmm. and you accept. And then in a a few hours before we're set to meet, you cancel telling me that you have a headache. I then see you on social media out with some, another friend. So I write a story. Oh, she lied to me. What I have clients do is actually list in two columns. What's the fiction and what's the fact? Right. The fact is you answered yes first and then you answered no. And then you showed up on social media. Those are the facts. Right. The rest of the noise, we may have good reason to create these stories based on our past experience with another person, but they're not factual. Right. You see what I mean? And very often we write these stories and then we behave based on those assumptions, predictions and and it can get us into communication knots and it can, and it's all fear-based because of maybe how another friend treated us or our experience as a young person or whatever it is, you know what I mean? So it's just, the more we practice questioning ourselves, the more pure we can show up in interactions, right? The more purely. I mean, in that particular example, and I think that it would be fair to say that we had, we have all falling into that trap some form or other in our lifetime right and but i could totally like as you were telling the story i was imagining myself in the situation because i'm remote from the story i'm not actually feeling it that i could see that part of it is because I didn't want to be rejected by Nancy. I'm afraid that Nancy didn't really like me as a friend to begin with. Of and course. so now I can see the fear, yes. get, you know, in it. But and when I'm in that situation, I may not recognize. You the, don't recognize yeah. it. And the other layer of fear, Lou, that we don't recognize often is the fear in actually unpacking our feelings with that other person in picking up the phone or, or the next time we're having a coffee saying, I felt upset when this happened. Yeah. And I'd like to find out from you if there was something that I did that maybe, like, you know, having yeah. an honest and open conversation, but that is the last thing most oh my of goodness. us want to do. Yeah. And along those lines, I read something and I have to find, uh, I think it's in my Insta paper or pocket or whatever, but I was reading an article about uh, just a few weeks ago that t- says that with respect to those kinds of conversations that you talked about just now, we are actually more afraid to go there with friends as opposed to like a loved one or like a partner or like a family member. It's almost like, you know, you're having an issue with your spouse or your boyfriend or your partner. It's easier for us to go there, but friends like friends, we don't want to go ask these questions. Yes. And there's so many kinds of friends, right? Right. We, we, we assemble a group of friends that nurture us in different ways. And mm-hmm. depending on the role that that friend plays in your life, you may not want to test the waters that way. And, and it's like you have everything to gain by being open and honest and a lot to lose by not doing so. But we still follow we still, these patterns. Right. Exactly. And um, you'd think that by the time we get to our age... <laughs> We would know how to. 
you would think, but like I, I've said this so many times, I can't even count, but I say, we think that as we age, that things just work out. Like we figure out all the knots in our rope. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's like the more you practice guitar, the better you get at guitar. So the more we practice the same habits, the more ingrained they will become. And so, oh, yes, I didn't even think about it that way. I mean, wh who says that because you get older, all of the stuff goes away. The stuff stays there. It just gets more deeply ingrained. Exactly. Oh, my God. That is such a You know, I never thought about that. Of course, it's the thing that you're practicing. So just because you've gotten older, you didn't necessarily get wiser about mm -hmm. things. So. No. no. That would be the hope, but that doesn't always happen. <laughs> so along those lines, um, kind of following along what we're talking about, as we get older in midlife, I think we find ourselves more and more involved or having to do the more difficult type of conversations uh, with our parents, you know, and especially with our aging parents. And sometimes we have to talk to them about difficult things that they don't want to hear from us. Uh, with our kids and they're becoming young adults themselves. And yes. that's another sort of tricky, difficult set of conversations yes. with people at work, you know, those kinds of stuff. And so, and I find that when we say difficult, difficult conversation, it's almost always fear-based, I think, because underneath it all, it's because I don't want to upset somebody I don't want her to yell at me or, right. you know, I don't want to experience the result of my words almost. Like if I, you know, like if I upset right. you, it's one thing if I upset you and I keep quiet, but if I, he when you I hear your response, right, I don't want to go there and I don't want to get into a fight. Um, but then the other message that we hear is uh, find your voice and speak up and I don't think that that's, I mean, is that really what we're supposed to do? Because I don't think that it's very helpful. Well, I think that it's too big a leap. I don't think that it's not something we should aspire to. I think it's jumping the shark a little bit. And this is why. Because to say to someone, well, just find your voice and speak up. If that person doesn't have the skills or the inventory of language to do that, sometimes it comes down to your inventory of language. Do you know how to phrase things. Do you have kind of a toolbox to do that? And 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 a lot of the times it it's just very helpful to even practice saying things differently. For instance, when people contemplate having having a difficult conversation, and I talk about this a lot, it's one of the most popular workshops that I do, and I have a free ebook on my site by the way, which you'll have in your notes so people mm -hmm. can download it. Excellent. There's a couple of steps to having difficult conversations and that I teach. And one of them is do your own job. Stay in your lane. What I mean by that is we spend a lot of time anticipating how our words will land with the <sighs> other person. A yeah. lot of time. And then we avoid it altogether because we're making up, you know, this scenario. It's not your job to predict how the other person will interpret your words. It's your job to present yourself and share your experience with compassion and with kindness and with respect. Once you do that, you've done your job. Don't do the other person's job, right? That's a, it's a, it sounds so simple, but it, it is a really difficult thing for people to grasp like, oh, and then they say, well, you know, I'm already anticipating that they're going to be upset. Okay, you're out of your lane. 
stay in your lane. How are you going to say it so you ensure that it's delivered in a respectful and compassionate way? Let's work on that and then let it go. You know, as you were saying that, I an experience of mine, like fairly recent, came to mind immediately. I was so worried about the reaction of my relative to what I'm about to say or what I wanted to say that in the end, I ended up tongue-tied, like because I was worried and I was worried about what she might say or how she might react. And I, in retrospect, on hindsight, I didn't deliver my message because I got tongue tied. I got flustered even before she started reacting because I was already, you know, anticipating. And you're not alone, Lou. This happens to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. And and when I say inventory of language, I don't mean to make it sound so complicated. Sometimes it's just like one strategy that can be very helpful is when you com- when you when you restrict yourself to I statements. What do I mean by that? When we start a statement statement with another person in a difficult conversation with you made me feel or you did this, you are right away setting the stage for defensiveness. You are it is right away belligerent. It is mm-hmm. confrontational. Stay with I statements. I felt the other day, I felt hurt when blank. Mm-hmm. I felt upset when you mm-hmm. said whatever. But start with your share your experience. Don't tell them what they did because then you're projecting or you're telling them what their intention was or how they felt. And no one wants to hear that. Right. Nobody yeah. can argue with us when we say how we feel. You feel what you feel. Right. Right. So, Sometimes these simple little tweaks can change our ability to communicate in a really big way and allow us to share thoughts without feeling so nervous about it. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things you said a few minutes ago is that if you're not used to having, so for example, let's say a parent-child relationship, if all your life you've never had these kinds of heart-to-heart, you know, conversations with your dad, and all of a sudden you're going to have that. Obviously, now I understand what you said when you said it's, you know, it's such a leap because you've never ever even had those kinds of conversations. And so would you, would you, um, recommend preparing, like writing scripts? Like, like if you've never had that kind of conversation with your parent and now you have to have that yep, conversation. I absolutely do. And it, it, it can be different for different people. Some people might like to write it out. Some people might just like to envision and practice, you know, even record themselves, even video, you know, record, open up a Zoom meeting and and have the conversation and record yourself and see how you show up, how many, you know, to get rid of all the ums or the hesitation or the tongue tied. But visualization in general is a really great way to prepare. And, And when you're focusing on sharing your experience and you take out of the equation all the predictions about how they're going to receive it, mm-hmm. you can really empower yourself to be a much more direct and clear communicator. And every time you express yourself and speak truth, every it builds on itself. You feel better the next time. You feel better in the next situation. It works. It bleeds into work, bleeds into home life, bleeds into friendships. It just, it you know, the lines are blurry now more than ever. So when you can communicate clearly, it, 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 you know, work, it transcends all areas of your, of your life. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is such a relevant topic for me because we have, um, without going into any details in our family, there is this, uh, 
there is this conversation that everybody is avoiding and everybody's like, well, you, you go tell, you, you be the one, you be the one and none of us wants to because none of us have ever done these kinds of conversations. And so we're all, we're all afraid. Really, this is truly fear. We were all afraid to go there and talk about this thing. So we're all like, you go, you do it. <laughs> and you know what else everybody does, which maybe you and your family are doing also, is the what if scenarios. Well, what's going to, so walk through it with yourself. What happens if, so, okay, so what happens? And then what? And then what? And if they say this, then what? Go all the way to the end of the line. Oftentimes, it's not as catastrophic as we think. And it's just our brains getting, you know, exactly so it's right. Important to go through these exercises with yourself. Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't stand up in front of a team at work unprepared, would you? Exactly. You right. So why, why do we do it differently in our personal? Uh, per- well, that's true. Exactly. So if you're going to pitch a project in the office at work, you prepare for that pitch exactly. so that the CEO, the CI, like they could hear your points clearly and you have a better chance of getting approved for your project. Exactly. Same thing. Oh my goodness. So true. Why do we think that we could pull it off spontaneously when we're talking about I difficult things with our parents? Well, we all do. Like, well, I, we I, all don't do. Wanna, I don't want to give the impression that I have this all figured. Believe me, so the we work I do <laughs> comes from falling on my face countless times yes, for yes. countless different reasons. Yes. We're going to get back to that interview shortly. I just wanted to briefly mention that this podcast is made possible by Midlife Cues. The Midlife Cues is a weekly digital publication for midlifers who are keen on making the most of their midlife. Every Sunday, we explore topics that help us live a joyful midlife. We talk about health and well-being. We talk about midlife mindset, one of the most important foundational things that we really need to master. We examine what growing bolder in our middle years mean for each of us individually. And we explore how we redefine success at work and in life. Give Midlife Cues a try by signing up for your free copy at midlifecues.com. Okie dokie, let's get back to the conversation. There was one other thing that you, this amazing talk that you had, there was another thing that you said about, oh, no, 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 actually this one, I'm not sure if you said it there, or if I read it in one of the articles that you had, but you talked about stages in our lives or there are points in our lives that marked the development of our relationship with fear, which mm-hmm. I thought was like fascinating. I think I had shared with you in our exchange of emails that I had worked with a couple of therapists through my life. And in both times, even though initially I told the therapist, I don't want to go back to my childhood. (laughs) But in both cases, we were able to, in the end, trace certain, you know, um, reactions that I'm having or fears that I'm having to something that happened in the past. And so... I thought that this, you said certain points in our lives that mark a relationship with fear. Can you talk a little bit about that riff off, you know, a yes, little bit with that? It is, it is the, the single thing that may get more eye rolls than any other thing I talk about. <laughs> um, and, and, but there is evidence behind it. It is not my opinion or your opinion. Everything starts at home. Um, you, you will hear, uh, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, 
talk about this. And there's a good reason for it. From in the womb, some people believe in the womb, and there is evidence to support that, um, to maybe seven years old, maybe a little older, but that, that you know, birth to seven range, our brains are basically recorders. We don't have, as very young children, we do not have that critical thinking piece, that analytical piece that we have later in life. So what we do is we soak up like a sponge, we absorb everything in our environment and we record it. That's why you will see children in, in other continents and countries have different mannerisms than, than ch maybe children in America. You will notice different procl proclivities, different tendencies, because we are just recording and imprinting. Our, that's what our brain does, records and imprints. Okay. Now, you know, that's cognitive development, right? And that's how it works. But think about this. The brain, if a ch young child experiences something negative, something that's emotionally charged, mm -hmm. then their brain codes that as such. Mm -hmm. And that lives in our nervous system. And to back to the point we were making before, to think that, to assume that as we age, that imprinting dissolves and evaporates is, is, is naive and, and is absolutely untrue. So the body keeps the score, right? It, it's a wonderful book um, that describes, and it, it talks about trauma and, and, and really, you know, awful things that happen to young people and how that manifests in their life. But the, the whole view on childhood development and how our experiences affect us and manifest later on has been widely, widely discussed and researched. Gabor Mate is a, is, is a, fabulous expert in childhood development mm -hmm. physician. And I, I would encourage your listeners to, to, to plug into him a little mm -hmm. bit, but, but the, the, this is why what happens to us as children stays with us because it's recorded in our nervous system. And what happens is later in life, when you are faced with a situation that triggers that, that that's why you show up in ways you may not even understand or realize or like, why did I just lash out like that? Or why did I have that reaction and feel so badly when someone said that to me? And it takes some unpacking to figure out where it came from, to your point about, about your work in therapy. I think that I also, because of that, understand now why, you know how some, there's a, there's a, mentally I know that I shouldn't be feeling this way, but why am I feeling this, do you know, you know, and I think it's because as to your, the way that you explained it, the experienced is imprinted, is coded in my nervous system, not here. So not in my head. Not, so, well, not in your, what you're talking about, Lou, is a great point that you raised. You're talking about your, your cerebral cortex. Right. Your prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. your logical thinking brain. My logical thinking brain, right. right. So my, my, say, yeah. my, my logical thinking brain is saying, no, Lou, you can go up there and speak. You can have, you know, you have yes, experience but your amygdala, here. your your amygdala at the brainstem yeah. is a completely different uh, pathway of the brain. And that's your fight or flight. That's where the cortisol gets pumped. That's where, you know, you're like, you're just, you're feeling the hair on your neck raising, you know, so different, different pathway, different, different part yeah. of the brain. So yeah. there's no logically talking myself into it almost. Right. You can't, right. 
That's exactly right. That's why, like, you know, we don't want to get in the weeds on this, but cognitive therapy, you know, talk therapy doesn't work for all sorts of trauma because you have to get into the nervous system. Right. Okay. Well, then having said that, is there a way to rewire our brain? Because I know you have something called a fear to want framework that I really, really want you to talk about. So having said, can we rewire Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. A resounding yes. We can rewire our brains. We can reframe our thoughts. We can change. We can change the way we show up. Mm -hmm. Now, like every other skill, it takes practice. So it's not something that you can just say, okay, I don't want to have that thought anymore. And then it's gone. You have to practice changing it. And when you change your thoughts, then you fire different neurons. When you keep firing those neurons, they get stronger, just like when you go to the gym and you lift weights, right? They get stronger and they're more apt to fire similarly next time. It's neuroplasticity. Our Mm -hmm. brains are able to change. And research on the brain shows not only do our brains change when we learn a new skill or we do a new thing, our brain changes when we think about doing things differently. When we think about jumping, bungee jumping, or we think about playing an instrument, our right. brains change. So yes, we can change it. The and fear, that can happen even in midlife. Of course it can <laughs> happen. Because here's a here's a secret I don't talk about all that much. I did most of my work and changed myself most in my mid-40s to 50s. Huh, see, okay, okay. Because I got really curious about why I was afraid of everything. Right. So I started doing all this research into neuroscience and cognitive behavior and why humans do what we do. And then I started to learn how to change okay. with the help of very, a very great support system of therapists and doctors. And I changed my life by using strategies to change my thoughts. And it took a long time, a lot of practice, but it changed my life. So I figured, well, I'm going to try to help other people. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk, Nancy, a little bit about the fear to want framework and and, um, where we might be able to read up on it a little bit more? So the fear to want uh, exercise is something that I developed for my clients. And actually it's part of my online course, the fear formula, Mm. um, which your listeners can find out about on my site, but it is one exercise that is so powerful because what I have people do is take five index cards Mm. on the front of each index card, write a fear-based thought. I, um, I'm afraid to talk to my partner about our communication because I don't want them to feel bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just an example. Mm-hmm. Or I, I afraid that I'll be stuck in this job for the rest of my life and unhappy. So write the fear-based thought on the front of the card on the flip side of that card, change the wording into a want. So for instance, we'll go back to the, I'm afraid to talk to my partner about on the flip side, it might look like. I want to speak truth to my partner so we can cultivate an intimate and growing relationship. Okay. So a lot of things happen and I have them read both sides to me. A lot of things happen neurologically when you reword your fear into a want, because when you read the fear based thought, your brain is in victim mode. You are in defensive mode. You are trying to protect yourself. You are feeling uh, negative feelings. When on the on the flip side, literally, when they speak the want, 
words, not wish, because wish is very different than want. A want, when you speak that want, you are in intention. Your brain is in an intentional, purposeful mindset, a growth mindset, and it changes your brain. And I and I've done this with young with college students. I I do talks mm-hmm. with college students, and I'll see them sit up. I'll see their chest come out a little bit. Mm-hmm. You empower yourself. So the want language is critical for right firing those different neurons, changing the the neural pathway, and empowering yourself. And then you're moving towards something instead of I trying see. to protect yourself from something. And so a couple of things there. Uh, one is the thing about the use of the word, because you're right. If I say I wish for something, I have a different feeling associated with that wish. Yes, because wishing wishing speaks to could happen, but it may not happen. Right. Want, desire, intention, very different. Very different. And I could feel the I could feel the internal difference when I use that word as opposed to the other wish, yes. you know, yes. or I would like, right? Yes. It's very I, different, right? Or I hope for. No, yeah, yeah. No. We want to get grounded in, in a real growth mindset. And, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it has profound. I love what, doing this exercise because I see the change. Mm-hmm. And when you do it enough, you start to automatically shift into that language for yourself. And, it's and do you problem. advise your clients to like do this over and over? Over like and this, over again. Okay, over and the over same, again. That, same, that same fear converted into a want statement over and over. Okay, yes. Gotcha. Say, say, and, and anytime a fear-based thought pops up, you know, Could, you don't have to yeah. do it with the index cards. Anytime yeah. a fear-based, shift it into a want right away. Yeah. And, and, and see how that feels in your body and also how it empowers you and kind of moves you forward instead of keeping you stuck. I imagine that also if, if I do that often, I will also catch myself to the point where, oh, wait, and then I will automatically rephrase it because I'm so, because yes. I'm doing it all the time, right? Because it's become get, a habit. You're really yeah. good at it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It can, it can lead to great change. It can that lead to, awesome. I've seen it lead to great change. One of my client, one of my coaching clients, the, our first session, she had a pile of index cards, <laughs> a pile. She said, okay, let's get started. <laughs> exactly. So this may be a good a time to ask this question, Nancy, but what do you actually do and how does this play into what you do? Well, what I actually do is I work with 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 leaders and teams to help them build emotionally healthy cultures. Mm. And I do that through commu- through helping them with communication strategy, untangling knots in the workplace. And and I and I also do group coaching and workshopping on communication flow and leadership. And all. How, do, how does that relate to fear, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. So I started my work in 2018 after being a writer for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I started working in 2018 on that fear piece because, as I mentioned to you, in my midlife, I experienced such crippling fear that I had had for decades, and I just wanted to change it. Yeah. So I started using strategies and, and creating my own to, to change my thoughts, to change the fear-based thoughts so that I could move forward in my life. And mm-hmm. it took practice and work 
but I got there and I really made significant change in my life. And so I said, well, I'd like to help other people do this. So I started working with private clients, but I also started working with corporate clients because my messaging resonated, but I found out that the fear messaging was problematic for a lot of my corporate clients. They just weren't there that they wanted to talk about fear so much. Mm -hmm. So the work I do is basically based on that, but I changed my messaging so that I could cast a wider net on, on my clients. Got it. So today, do you work primarily with uh, through corporate, like corporate work, or do you still work with individuals or groups? I do do I do do individual coaching still, but mm -hmm. primarily I work with corporate clients. Got um, it. Uh, but I do have some private clients as well. So I just you know I I just have to limit how many I have at any given time because yeah. You know, but I love working with people and seeing the change that these strategies can can affect for them. And again, that's why I still have my course online because then individual, you know, people that may not, I may not be taking on individual clients, they can take my course and, and get all the strategies that I Okay. Have. That was my question. So the, the, the course that you mentioned, the fear course that you mentioned is available to anyone, doesn't have to be through your coaching or through the corporate work. Exactly you can just right. Get it. Okay. Exactly gotcha. Right. And where is the best place to find out all about this? Online. Well, to go to my website, you know, nancyrberger.com and there's okay. a course page there. There's everything you need to know is there. You can access the course directly through there. You can enroll and you can learn about my other services as well. But everything is, is on my site. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put a link to that on the show notes for sure. But Nancy, this has been fascinating. I love this topic. I might just have to invite you again to dig in to. some more I, because I love, 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 love. I love talking topic. about it. We, we <laughs> could talk about this all day long, right? We I just know. scratched the surface. Exactly. So I really, I, I appreciate you sharing your insights and your expertise on this, Nancy. Yes, at 20, I was a chameleon. I adapted to the expectations of everyone else and what they sort of saw me as. And now I am a chrysalis. I am in a constant state of growth and learning and curiosity. Uh, and I don't bother with what other people see that I should be or think that I should be. I want to thank Nancy Berger again for sharing her experience and insight with us. You're going to find all the links to her website and social media accounts, as well as some highlights of this episode on the show notes at secondbreaks.com. And thank you, my dear listener friend, for joining me today. If you like this episode or the podcast in general, I would so appreciate it if you would do me a favor and give a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This gesture really helps in growing the show and reaching other midlifers who would benefit from the topics that we cover here. And I thank you in advance for that. I'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on making your dent, my friend. Go cool Beans!